These uh, Al-Qaeda operatives were another vehicle that came alongside our vehicle and opened fire with a machine gun through the driver's door. And that just gave me an assurance that God was gonna take care of my family and the hope that my husband was gonna be okay. If you are alive and if you are going through this, God's going to use this for his glory. It was just incredible. Within just hours, they started talking about forgiveness. The difference we have is not that we don't go through trials and difficulties, but we're never alone. There aren't many Americans who've come face to face with Al-Qaeda terrorists and live to tell about it. There are even fewer who live to tell about it and then went right back into the battle zone to continue planting churches, training pastors, and serving the Lord. We'll meet one of the only ones and hear how God is continuing to do mighty things in West Africa right now on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Today we are in our studio with Brent and Shelley Teague. Uh, they are missionaries for the last 22 years in Western Africa. And we're going to talk about what God is doing in Western Africa. We're going to talk about the rise of Islam and radical Islam in Western Africa and persecution that's happening there. Uh, and we're going to talk about an amazing story of God's faithfulness. Uh, Brent and Shelley, welcome to our studio. Thank you. Thank you. How did God call you to Western Africa? What, what did he do to say, hey, you guys leave America and go half a world away and, and do some work for me? Actually, I first started feeling called to Africa when I was still a very small child. I always loved Africa, loved when the missionaries came at our church and spoke. And so when I was 18, I went off to college to prepare for ministry. And I had the opportunity to go as an intern from my college to Africa for the very first time. And God confirmed in my heart, that's what he wanted me to do. So after college, I left and went to the country of Ghana where I worked. And uh, about eight months after I was there, I met Brent. And I'll kind of let him share the rest of the story. I uh, grew up as a missionary kid. My parents were missionaries in West Africa. Um, but I was very shy. So when the Lord started speaking to me about being a minister, I was like, you've got the wrong person. Uh, but God, uh, when he calls us, he prepares us. And so I trained to be an engineer in college, but it was at a college retreat that I went to a spiritual retreat. And uh, God just got a hold of me and really touched my heart. And um, I had a just a deep desire to uh, reach out to uh, uh, particularly uh, Muslim people groups. And so after college, I... Uh, Went out as a uh, single intern on a two-year assignment and uh, ended up meeting my wife out there. When I think about uh, the number of people that we could talk to who are Americans who've had a face-to-face -face encounter with al-Qaeda and walked away and are still telling the story, there's not very many of those. Share with us how you encountered al-Qaeda and how God really did some amazing things to allow you to be here and tell the story. Well, I really shouldn't be alive. Um, it was May 11th of 2004, 
and I was going up to a village about 90 kilometers north of the capital city of Niamey in, in Niger. And I had a couple Bible school students with me and their families. Uh, we had three children in the car. And uh, these um, uh, Al-Qaeda operatives were in another vehicle. They came alongside our vehicle, broad daylight, and opened fire with a machine gun through the driver's door. So the first bullet went through my knee, and then the second bullet went through uh, the shin of my leg. I just missed the uh, main artery by about a millimeter. So. Wow. But I was in pretty bad shape. Then they took us off-road. I got the car stopped. Then they commandeered our vehicle and followed in theirs and took us off-road and robbed us. And uh, at that time, they weren't kidnapping Westerners like they are today. They were carjacking, and then they were taking the cars and chopping them up and then reselling the parts to finance their their operations. Uh, things have changed a lot uh, today. And uh, But anyway, I ended up in the middle of the desert, and uh, I had no hope for, honestly, no hope for survival. Um, they discussed finishing us off, uh, but uh, the commander decided not to waste the ammunition. They thought I was going to die anyway. There were 12 other attacks that same year in that same area. I'm the only uh, per driver that survived uh, the, the wow. different attacks. So, But God just did a miracle. I should, should be dead. I was laying in the desert praying, uh, getting ready to go to heaven when the Lord spoke to me and told me my mission wasn't over on earth. And... Um, uh, the miracle is, is that there was an anonymous phone call to the federal troopers' office, the gendarme, gendarmerie in the capital city, telling them that I'd been shot, that I was critically wounded, and giving them my location where I'd been dumped in the desert. And the miracle is, is that that phone call came 30 minutes before I was ever attacked. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten to me on time. So uh, I don't know how God did that, but uh, it happened. It's one of those things we don't have to know how. We just say Wow. Shelly, obviously you weren't in the vehicle, thankfully. Um, how, what's your side of this story? How did you hear about this attack and the fact, hey, your husband is, has been shot, he's uh, badly, badly wounded? Uh, tell us what happened on, on your end of the conversation. The week before this had happened, our family had actually been traveling back and forth to this village every day. I was doing a teacher training for children's workers. So I had taken the day off with the girls. Our girls were still small at the time in elementary school. So we were actually at a recreation center playing with them when the news came. There was a member from the church that came in and got me. And um, I remember I called the pastor that was in the same city where they said they had taken him and he was in a hospital there. And in West Africa, you never say over the phone that someone has died. And you generally say they're very, very sick. And so as I was asking about his condition, he's, they kept saying he's been shot and it's bad. It's really, really bad. And I would ask, is he dead? Well, it's really, really bad. So I didn't know if he was alive or not, but during that time and trying to figure out what to do, I, um, I just felt God speak to me and say, you're going to be back in Niger ministering. And that just gave me an assurance that God was going to take care of my family and the hope that my husband was going to be okay. And I remember calling my mom first and telling her what happened. And I said, pray for me because I need to call Brent's parents. And when I talked to his dad, his dad kept saying, is he alive? And I said, yes, he's alive. And he asked, do you know for sure? And I said, well, no, I don't have confirmation, but I have peace in my heart. God's spoken to me and he's going to be okay. You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. And so God was speaking to you. 
you had really a, the voice of God speak to you as well out in the desert. Tell us that part of the story. Well, I was praying at first. I was really questioning God why he permitted me to be in the situation I was at. And then I realized I'm going to be seeing Jesus soon. I need to have a better attitude. And so then I just started worshiping the Lord and thanking him for saving me and for all he's done in my life and thanking him for the privilege of serving him. And then it's when I started praying for Shelly and my two daughters uh, that I heard this voice. I mean, it's like talking right here. And it was a question. God just spoke to me and said, who told you your mission on earth is over? And uh, it was just shocking. And then I just responded and said, well, Lord, if, if you want me to work and continue to work, I'm willing, but you're going to have to do a miracle in a hurry. Although I didn't know that 40 minutes before he'd already done the first miracle. After you recovered, and we won't go into the whole long story of recovery and some more, you know, miracles that God did to bring you back and back to health, did you feel a, a new sense of passion or a new sense of God's hand because you could have died? I mean, you, your ministry could have been over. Clearly, God has something that he wanted you to do. How did you respond to that? I think the experience has really changed my perspective because when I was laying there at death's door, I realized at that point that what we spend most of our time searching after things, material things, uh, positions, and all those kinds of things really are temporal, and they're, they're gone just like that. And what really counts, the only two things that mattered to me when I was dying was my family and my relationship with the Lord and what I was doing for him. And I realized when I go to meet him, it doesn't matter what house I lived in or what car I drove or what clothes I, I, I have a habit of wearing. What matters is, did, did I respond to his will and did I accomplish the mission he had for me? And so it's like a second chance. And I got to think about what were some opportunities missed? What is the Lord? And so I really had a renewed and refined vision. And as a result of going back to Niger, in that area where I was shot, I'd been trying to get approval, permission from the chiefs and the villages along the Niger River to preach, and they'd been hostile and refused. Well, after being shot and coming back, when they saw me, they said, you shouldn't be alive. God's with you. And so they opened and gave me opportunity in village after village along the Niger River to uh, preach the gospel. So even in this trial, even in this attack, God opened more doors. He opened more doors. And, you know, even in personal evangelism, I've led many people to the Lord sharing the testimony. And then I pull up my pants leg and I show the the scars and from the wounds and all that that are still there. And, uh, you know, when I was—God did lots of miracles to heal me, and he healed the bone and all that he did. But my wife was actually praying and asking the Lord to heal the scars, and the Lord spoke and said, no, I'm leaving that as a testimony. Well, a lot of people have come to Christ because of this testimony. And so I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I do thank the Lord for it. Has it given you a way to speak and encourage people who are going through it now, who are going through either persecution or some other form of hardship, sickness, suffering— uh, to be able to say, hang on, hang on, God's doing something. Yeah, it it's, uh, helps me to encourage others to say, you know, I mean, I don't know why I'm alive and others are dead, but if you are alive and if you are going through this, God's going to use this for his glory. A lot of times I think we misinterpret that passage out of Romans because we read it and we say all things work together for good for them that love God and, you know, called according. But it's, it's, not, it's not according to our 
you know, when we talk our about good there, our good. definition <laughs> of good, but it works together for God's good and for his purpose and for his mission. And, uh, and in some sense, biblically, it's actually a privilege to suffer because greater is your reward. But when you're going through it, you, you don't feel privileged. You'd like to give the privilege to someone else. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Shelly, what about you? As you know, really in many ways, having your husband return from the dead to you because he should have died, what has that done to your faith and to your desire to serve the Lord? Never once through all of this did that desire leave. And in fact, I remember our youngest daughter when Brent was going through recovery. It took us eight months in the States. I remember her going and sitting on her dad's lap and saying, Dad, we need to pray that you get better. And she would make sure he did his rehab exercises because she said, there's still people that need to hear about Jesus. And that was what we kept thinking. There's people that haven't heard. We need to go back. And God permitted this to happen, but we want to go back to encourage the church. It was really important for us to get back to let the church know that we were okay to also let the church know that the trials that you go through don't need to destroy your faith, that God walks with you through it and you can come out on the other side a stronger person. And uh, so we never really went through an, a time when we didn't want to go back. Our goal from the moment he was shot and we realized he was going to survive, from that moment on, our goal was to get back to Africa. And God saw us through that time and God has allowed us to live there many years since this happened. Let's talk about the, the country of Niger. In the last few months, we've seen some very intense persecution. Can you tell us a little bit what happened uh, and then talk about what the response of the church has been? Well, historically for, for Niger, uh, it's been a lay Islamic state. When you say lay Islamic state, it means that they're not under strict Islamic law. And they also uh, permit their citizens to change religions if they want to. Other countries, that's not the case. And so there's been uh, the possibility there to witness, to preach. And so uh, Niger has been a kind of a unique in that way. And um, they've permitted uh, churches to be built and schools and this kind of thing. And so a lot of work has gone on there, although the country is very much um, Islamic. Uh, but the pressure that's there from northern Nigeria from these uh, radical extremist groups is there, and you have their branches within uh, Niger as well and, and next door in Mali. And so uh, we've always known the potential for this kind of violence was there. Uh, the sad thing is, is that when you have an event like what happened in France with the cartoonists, and then the European Union, they wanted to do this march. And so the president of Niger goes to march in support because the European Union's very important to West Africa economically, but in doing so, that then enrages these radical groups. And um, here, this magazine that makes fun of Christians, Jews, and Muslims, but their response, uh, uh, I, for me, is an excuse really to persecute the church because the church is having an impact in the country. And so they uh, burned uh, uh, about 70 places of worship. Uh, not all of, when you see the stats, they'll change because some were actual church buildings, others were house churches, others were kind of more temporary, but about 70 places were burned. Um, you have churches, you have schools, you have orphanages, um, and uh, it was, and what was shocking is that it, it happened like the same weekend across the country, and so uh, uh, for uh, many, many people, you know, you're at church one Sunday, <laughs> and then the next Sunday, there's no place there's of worship. There's no church. There's no church. And so uh, the violence, too, you know, the way it was done, and it, and, and it was mainly high schoolers. 
You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. One of the things that struck me, though, is the amount of preparation that had gone into it, because uh, as you shared there, specific buildings were targeted, specific things, and a, a building right next door might not be touched at all. You have some churches that have been there a long time. For example, the uh, Baptist Church in the center of Niami, the, that, that uh, uh intersection there is called the Baptist intersection. It's been, so you had like landmark places like the Catholic cathedral. So those could be a random, you know, if you had a random crowd going out, those are type places that you might see attack. But I mean, we're talking about churches that are in, in neighborhoods that, you know, are off the beaten track that, and, and it wasn't what we saw is that uh, when they came in and burned these churches, you have the actual neighbors of the church coming and helping to put out the fire. So you realize it's not the immediate neighbors doing this. And so, and the other thing that's interesting, and uh, you know, can interpret however you want, but churches that were meeting in houses owned by wealthy Muslims weren't attacked. So and those that were owned by Christians or owned by the church were attacked. So there's some kind of coordination, even though you, you when you have a mob mentality, things get out of hand. But there was some coordination to know where these churches were, which ones to attack, which ones not to attack, et cetera. And what has been the response of the church? Because I know you guys are in contact with pastors and church leaders in the country, uh, even some pastors who had their churches, had their parsonages burnt. What has been their response? I think the immediate response was shock. They were traumatized. Uh, we talked to them, their voices were shaking. But after that, it was just incredible. Within just hours, they started talking about forgiveness. Christ has forgiven us, and we forgive you for what you did. And the church really believes that God's going to turn this around, this event that Satan intended to destroy and intimidate the church. They really believe that God is going to use this event to help them reach their neighbors. And I've also, they've been very thankful for those that came to help them, very grateful for that, very forgiving to those that attacked them. And I really do believe God's going to use this to unite the church, but also to give them opportunities to share God's love with those around them. Brent, some of these churches that were burned, you helped build. I mean, it's your blood, sweat, and tears that that got destroyed. What's been your response? Have you asked God, okay, God, you know, you could have protected this work, have you had that thought, or has it just been, hey, the Lord's doing what He's doing? And Well, I mean, the Lord is sovereign. Uh, we, you know, when you raise the funds, I mean, we're looking at about, in the work that we helped establish, about $300,000 in damages. That's a lot of money to raise, but it's not just that. I mean, the, the, the physical work of going in and purchasing land and building a church and planning a church and all of that. But, you know, what where we rejoice is that the actual believers weren't killed. And one of the things that you're reminded of is that the church isn't a building. The church is a community of believers. One of the pastors that called me said, you know, he said, one of the issues we've been having the past few years has been a lot of division in the body of Christ. And he said, some of the things that we were fighting about we got burned up in one day. Wow. And he said, I believe God's going to use this to unite us and to remind us of what the true focus should be and to understand that it's the love of Christ, it's the unity in the spirit of Christ, it's the community of believers. That's the most important thing. It's interesting that you say that because we see that around the world, 
that persecution unites the body of Christ. Uh, you know, uh, so it's interesting to hear that that's happening in Niger uh, since this attack happened. Shelley, one of the things you said this morning, as you shared in our VOM Chapel, is uh, we had a feeling that persecution was coming to the country. How did that feeling come up, or, or what made you think, hey, this is going to be a place where there is persecution? Of course, I think one of the things was, Brent's already mentioned what we were seeing going on around us. Everything in, in Mali, in in um, Nigeria, Boko Haram, the Al-Qaeda of the Maghrib, different groups, radical groups. But also in the 15 years that we ministered there, we had noticed a difference. At the beginning, you, you had resistance, but often places were wide open. You could go do an open-air crusade for for a an entire week and people would come and listen people it was it was hard to start a church it took a long time to have a group of believers but yet there was an openness there towards the last few years right before we left we noticed more opposition than we had ever had before before i used to go into the villages and teach i teach the children there'd be no opposition whatsoever from the children from the young people they, the parents might try to keep them from coming but no physical um attack. And we I never was in any danger. But yet I remember uh, at the end when we were there, we would I'd come back from the b- villages with the little red marks or bruises where they'd been throwing stones or rubber flipping rubber bands at me and trying to get us to leave. There were times when we weren't even able to finish the program. We also found when you would go into a village, you might be able to have a two-day meeting before the chief would even come and say, we feel like it's dangerous. We're going to be attacked or you're going to be attacked. It's time to end the meetings. So we had just felt that something was happening and really began to pray that God would unite the church, but strengthen the believers to, to withstand whatever came. Today, God has you, um, has kind of shifted your ministry from Niger to Ivory Coast. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing there in Ivory Coast and uh, especially why that's such a strategic location uh, for gospel work right now. Where we see Ivory Coast as strategic is because of its economics and people have come from all over for work. Um, there are uh, about 12 million immigrants that have come, and it's estimated that 70% are Muslim. But it also means for us that nearly every unreached people group in West Africa is represented within the territories of Ivory Coast. And in countries where we can't openly preach or witness, in the Ivory Coast, we can. So we have access to these unreached people groups somewhere. There's very few known believers. We have access to them. And so we think it's a very strategic place to be uh, to reach them. Our listeners, some of them have Muslim coworkers or Muslim neighbors that they would like to to share Christ with. How do you advise them to do that? How do you advise them to kind of open that door to be able to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus? One of the things that I've found is that um, a lot of times we try to get into like theological debating and things, and that doesn't really work. Um, You can, but both parties go away feeling like they won the debate. Um, But what really impacts is personal testimony. And not sitting down and say, listen to my personal testimony of conversion, but in everyday life, uh, I was sick, I was, I had such and such, I was prayed for and God healed me, or, you know, I had such a, a certain situation and, and I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't alone in the situation because Jesus is my friend. And that kind of personal connection with God, they don't have that relationship. And so that will 
that impacts greatly. The other thing that we found in West Africa, I don't know if it would be the same in the United States, but uh, when we have major Christian holidays, it's an opportunity, and I know we're very family-oriented and private, but it's an opportunity to invite um, a, a Muslim co-worker, hey, would you like to see how we celebrate Christmas? We'd like to invite you over. These these are holidays or opportunities, and it's a, not a church-type setting necessarily, but it's an opportunity to get together and then for to build a friendship and also to have opportunity to share these personal testimonies. But I think that personal relationship, uh, and it doesn't matter who you are on earth, you're going to go through stuff. And uh, the difference we have is not that we don't go through trials and difficulties, but we're never alone. And that personal relationship is something they don't have and that you can only have through Jesus. Finally, we want to equip people to pray and particularly to pray for Western Africa and the countries where your heart is. Um, how would you encourage people to pray, or how would you advise them to pray? I think right now one of the most important things that I'm praying about is the violence that's taking place through Boko Haram. Um, this is the group that stole the the girls that were in school. They're a very violent group. They're killing lots of people. And just recently they've started trying to attack into Chad, into um, into Niger and Cameroon. And just recently they were attacking and trying to take over cities. In fact, I think even maybe right now they're trying to attack into Niger and our Christians are trying to leave. They're trying to get out of the areas they're trying to attack. So one thing would be to pray that um, for a stop to this violence and that God would protect our Christians, but also God would protect the other civilians that are dying, the soldiers that are dying. Many of them, as they're fighting this war, they're dying, but they don't know who Jesus Christ is. And it's a terrible thing that's happening because lives are being lost without knowing Christ as Savior. So that's been something that's really on my heart about that. But also that God will raise up the Christians themselves would have a burden to reach out to their neighbors, to reach out to a people group that's a little unlike them from another tribe, but they're living there. They're their neighbors or they're in the next village to have a burden to go and share the gospel with them and to see churches planted in every city and every village of their country. And I think another thing that would be a good prayer request is that uh, God would uh, use the church in West Africa. So, for example, you've got uh, violence going on in northern Nigeria or you've got it in, in, in Niger, different places, but you have displaced people, you have orphans, you have situations but that God would help the the church in Africa to respond in a in a holistic and in a loving manner and to really display the the love of Christ to reach out to those who are hurting and persecuted. You know, it's interesting that you encourage us to pray that the Christians will have a heart to reach out. Uh, I think that's a great prayer for American Christians, too, uh, that our churches will be full of people who have a heart to reach their neighbors and, and reach uh, the next town over and, and plant uh, the gospel plant churches. So uh, Brent and Shelley Teague, thank you so much for sharing with us today uh, the amazing testimony of what God has done through you. Thank you for your service and your willingness uh, and for sharing with us. Thank you. It's thank a privilege you. to be here. Thank you also to our listeners this week. You can connect with the Voice of the Martyrs and listen to other episodes of VOM Radio on our website, vomradio.net. You can also leave a comment or a question at vomradio.net or by calling our comment line 1-800-757-5069. That's 1-800-757-5069. 
connect with us on social media. You can tweet a highlight from our conversation with the Teagues and use the hashtag VOM Radio. You can also connect with VOM underscore USA on Twitter and follow the Voice of the Martyrs USA on Facebook. I hope you've been blessed by Brent's amazing survival story, uh, the goodness and the miracles of God. I hope you'll join me this week in praying for the Christians of Niger, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, and the other nations of West Africa. Pray that God continues to move in those nations in spite of opposition, in spite of persecution. Come back and join us next time on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.